find the Peripheral Podcast on Twitter at Peripheral Pod or email us at theperipheralpodcast at gmail.com. And we're on Facebook. In case you're wondering whose voice that was, it's one of the last recordings of my brother that I have. It's one of many voicemails I've received from him while he was in the middle of a meltdown or mental breakdown. My brother was diagnosed with borderline schizophrenia as a teenager, but I really don't know what borderline really means. Some of my earliest memories of my brother consist of him thinking the music he was listening to had secret messages or that his family was conspiring against him. This particular call, my brother had been attacked by some of the other tenants of the apartment complex. They had kicked in his front door and tried to rob him of his prescription drugs and any money he might have had. He had literally just moved into this apartment complex and I had to help move him out. He lost any deposit he had. This is an ongoing cycle that he would go through. He would have to live at some of these places because he had no credit or his credit was horrible. Or he would get into altercations with people. Something a lot of people don't know is people who are mentally ill are three times more likely to be victims of crimes, to be attacked by others who take advantage of them. Later that week, I would receive another call from the police that had found him beaten and bloody in the middle of the street without shoes or a shirt in the middle of winter. This cycle of one catastrophe after another would become the norm for my family. After my brother was kicked out of the home, anytime the phone would ring and it was my brother, it would induce dread and anxiety within our family. We never got a normal phone call just to say hi and to catch up. It was always a call from jail or asking for money or to help move him out of whatever place he was living because he was being evicted or thrown out. This went on from the time my brother was 18 years old to his death, April 28, 2004. His cause of death would be deemed as a stroke But at the time, my sister had gone through his medications and found what we believe is a lethal combination of antipsychotics that were being overprescribed. It's hard to say if the doctors did this intentionally or if my brother would forget that he already had a prescription filled and would get it double filled because at the time they did not have a database like they do today. It's hard to say who's at fault, but I truly know that his mental illness was the root cause to all of this. 
in accordance with May, which happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month, I'm going to do a multi-part series about mental illness. These episodes will be broken up over time, so it won't be a string of three or four of them. But anytime I find a story that I feel has important information that may give a better understanding, I will revisit this topic. And for this episode, I'm going to be joined by Tiffany, who is currently living with mental illness and how she's bettered her life through the years with treatment and medication. My name is Tiffany, first and foremost. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm 27. I had to double check my age before I just said it out loud. So I grew up in a family of five, me and my two other younger brothers. I'm the oldest and I'm the only girl. It had become pretty normal for me and my younger brother to be left alone together a lot. And then as the even younger one came up, I was a little bit older then. And we were together pretty much all of the time. And both of my parents worked. I was totally one of those latchkey kids. Built-in babysitter kind of. Oh, yeah. Um, That's actually a joke my mom used to make all the time was that I was her live-in help, Mm -hmm. which is like kind of funny. And she would say it in a way that was funny, except like, Everyone we were with would laugh, and then I wouldn't because it was true. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're the one that's not being, not going to the movies, not going out on your date, not doing what you wanted to do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for a very, uh, very long time, I was getting my brothers up for school, feeding them breakfast, getting myself ready for school, and then getting us home every day, which was um, about as much fun as it sounded. My parents were pretty deeply unhappily married for. About as long as I can remember, the thing that always stands out to me now when I sort of retell my story that have sort of shaped who I've become and shaped my bipolar disorder or what have you, they were both deeply, deeply troubled people, (laughs) people who shouldn't have been married or people who didn't have any business whatsoever having kids at all. (laughs) Something that I see is parents will stay together for the sake of the children when they completely hate each other and then they're literally just putting the children in a toxic environment as opposed to separating and they think, well, if mom and dad are separated and little Johnny has to visit mom on the weekends or dad on the weekends, that's a worse situation than they think that separating is going to put more stress or more issues on the children, but they never equate them fighting in front of the children or arguing or whatever as being a bad situation either. Correct. And I wouldn't necessarily put my parents in that camp. I honestly don't know why they stayed together. My mom had started cheating on my dad when I was in first grade. So I was six. They did not divorce until I was 15. My dad found out my mom had been cheating on him pretty regularly when I was 10. And even still, they stayed together an additional five years after that point. My mom definitely underwent a serious transformation during the time that she was with my dad. My dad was 
always kind of like a manipulative, emotionally abusive, and then a physically abusive asshole. Whereas my mom, I think, started off as sort of a naive, um, self-conscious, insecure girl. And then as she got a little bit older and the marriage progressed and her affairs progressed, she really, her personality changed a lot. And that's actually not wholly uncommon when you are bipolar because you can start exhibiting actual mood swings and episodes probably around your early 20s, which is when she married my dad. But how it affects you and how it progresses can actually worsen with age. I think my mother suffers from clinical depression because she just doesn't care about anything to the point where she's actually kind of vicious or vindictive towards people. If you have something happy or positive to say, she'll just knock it right down. I see that as being depressed because she doesn't want to do anything. She's a total defeatist attitude. And meanwhile, my sister, I would say, is bipolar because she'll go from spending days in bed to being manic for days. You know, everyone says, oh, I'm bipolar because they're happy and sad and the same conversation. And I'm like, no, that's not what that means. No, not at all. Uh, if anything, um, what you're saying about your sister definitely describes uh, what can be constituted as bipolar. When I'm feeling hypomanic, because I don't get full-blown mania, I'm bipolar too, which is different than bipolar one. And mania isn't mania. Mania is when you have really grandiose thoughts. Um, you think you're the president. You can suffer actual delusions. You can see things. You can hear things. That's super way intense. And I do not experience that. I experience hypomania. So I will have lots of energy. I will feel super positive. I will be filled with all the good vibes. Everything is coming up my way pretty much when I'm hypomanic, whether that's true or not. That's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Usually I have like so much energy. I'm just getting shit done. I'm like in the zone, except I'm like living that way. So I'm going day to day, just kind of like carrying that energy and I won't necessarily need to sleep a whole, whole lot, maybe a little bit. I could even possibly go longer periods of time without eating because I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just sort of uh, following my impulses or choices to wherever they're going to take me because I have that much energy. But then when I'm on the more depressive end or if I'm in a depressive episode, uh, I'm in bed or I'm on my couch and I can't do anything. I don't have the desire to do anything. I don't necessarily like cry a lot, like not that kind of depression. Sometimes it's just dark yeah. gloom. Yeah, it's just a complete lack of motivation to do anything. Yep. And a complete disconnect from the things that I care about and the people that I love. How long can that last for you? Well, for me, sadly, I err on the more depressive end of the spectrum itself. So I kind of don't experience the fun side of the bipolar that I have very often. If I do, it's short lived. If I'm in a depressive episode, the last true depressive episode I had that went on for longer than, say, a week was a couple years ago. And that went on for nine to 10 months, which was not great. That was before I had gotten help also. Mm -hmm. So I was still unmedicated and sort of um, resorting to coping mechanisms that were not helpful. So I was just extremely horribly depressed. I mean, I still went to work because I'm a self-sufficient, independent person and I want to pay my bills, but I would basically 
wake up, go to work, act like a normal person, and then come home and not move from my couch, not really talk to anybody. Or I would go out and drink a lot (laughs) and then come home and sleep and not talk to anybody. So that was the coping mechanism was either. That was one of them. Uh, I also have a long history of self mutilation or self injury. I started cutting before it was cool. I guess you could say just because of the situation that I grew up in and everything was so external, my way of dealing with it was pulling it in and making it my fault because I didn't have anything else to blame. How that manifested was basically I was 11 and I had started cutting myself with razor blades. And at the time that I was really depressed a couple years ago, that's normally how I was kind of getting myself through that was the intense feelings of shame and disgust and absolute um, abject darkness, I don't know, would come through. And that's how I dealt with it is I would cut. But luckily, since I've gotten treatment and realized what was going on, I have not done that since, thankfully. And my depressive episodes don't last months now either. It will be like a couple days at a time or I'll have a really shitty bad day. And then, you know, luckily with bipolar every day can has the potential to be something different. So sometimes that's a good thing once you're medicated, because then you can kind of find yourself in a more neutral place after a short period of time, depending on how you're dealing with it. Anyone can have a really shitty day and then it's up to them how they want to cope with it. Even if you don't have a mental illness, if you resort to drinking or taking pills or whatever, to deal with your crappy day, and let's just say you have multiple in a row, you you can stick yourself into a, a worse place. A completely healthy, mentally healthy person can become depressed, can become something just by abusing drugs or finding that coping mechanism instead of just, I had a bad day and I got to move on. You know? Definitely. Self-medicating and, and- pushing off the the bad feelings is pretty common. That's what everybody wants to do. Nobody wants to feel like shit. Nobody wants to feel ashamed of themselves or nobody wants to feel rejected or whatever could have set off the bad feelings. You know, nobody wants to feel that way. So even if it's just as simple as like, you're constantly on your phone and you're constantly checking social media because that is making you feel good about yourself and pulling you out of this shitty situation. If you're doing it all the time and you're trying to force off the bad feelings hard enough, I feel like that just gives the bad feelings even more power. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, you do end up, just like you said, depressed or having some or sort of other issue, an addiction, what have you, just because you're not facing the shitty feelings head on. That's probably the most valuable thing I've learned through everything is that, you know, yeah, I'm going to have shitty bad days or even like in the middle of a normal day, I could feel totally fine. And for some reason, my shit dips way down low and I do not feel, I don't feel awesome anymore. And I feel kind of sad and sort of out of place. And um, I noticed that the best thing that I can do is just sort of acknowledge that it's happening. So maybe I'm kind of entrenched in my bad feelings and I'm not a lot of fun. Maybe I cancel my plans. I don't know. Maybe I do come home and just lay on my couch, but I'm kind of accepting that that's what I need at the time to get through the shitty feelings. And then hopefully it it decides to pass at that point. But I think a lot of people fight against the shitty feelings too hard. And that's how problems come up. And I'm glad you mentioned being on your phone too much. People consider it such an inner, non-threatening thing to do, but 
if you're on your phone all the time, if you're playing your Xbox 360 24 seven or whatever, it can be a bad thing because you're not interacting. You're not engaging. You're not taking care of the things in life that you should be. And it doesn't matter if you're drinking or smoking pot or if you're just on your phone, it's all escapism. And it's the most accessible, most widely accepted way of disconnecting yourself from your experience because everybody does it nowadays. And I'm not knocking social media. I am. I am a social media butterfly. <laughs> I'm knocking it. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> I try to be funny on Facebook. I'm not going to lie. I really like that people are encouraged to speak their mind. And I really like the way that the transfer of ideas and conversations can begin Mm-hmm. on Facebook. But it's kind of shitty that we've become so socially conscious of the way we're saying stuff to the point where like we won't say it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even just like sharing about your podcast and other people's podcasts. Yeah. I get excited when, you know, there's that collective experience. And that's something that I kind of seek out. Absolutely. But I know that I seek it, mm-hmm. you know, that try to get that collective comfort. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned it was really bad for you. And then before you sought professional help and now it's not so bad. So what was that help that you got? What, it, what form did it come in? Are you medicated? Do you go to counseling? What do you do? I do all of it. I wouldn't have guessed that this was what was going on at the time. I thought I was medically sick. Like I thought that I had some sort of vitamin deficiency. I thought there was something just like wrong with me. Because I had started going to the doctor because I was having these wicked physical illnesses <laughs> pretty regularly. It was like clockwork. So I would go through the week and I would be pushing through and doing totally fine. And then the weekend would come and all the activity would stop and I would be unable to function. And when I say unable to function, I mean I was exhausted. I was so tired I was falling asleep without my consent. Like I was just falling asleep sitting on my couch. I would have body crippling migraines to the point where like I was throwing up and it was horrible. And this happens, I want to say all through the month of September of 2013. Like it was an every weekend occurrence. And I was like, okay, like there's something wrong with me. I need to see a doctor and get some blood tests done. There's something wrong. But she checked me out and I was fine. And she referred me to a therapist to sort of handle stress better because I said I was under a lot of stress at work. I was a car salesman at the time, which is weird. Commission sales is stressful. She was like, you know, maybe you're not handling your stress right. Go talk to somebody. So I went back to see a therapist that I had seen a couple years prior before I had health insurance and I was paying out of pocket. So I went back to this person who kind of knew my story already and knew where I came from and explained to her that since I had seen her last, I had had a major depressive episode, but I was doing better now, except that, you know, this weird thing was happening where like my body was literally sort of giving up on me come the weekend. (laughs) So the more her and I talked and I gave her more backstory on what my depressive episode looked like how long it lasted, um, what had gone on prior to the depressive episode sort of starting and what it was like after it ended. That's when, and it was all happened in one session sitting down with her, that's when she said, okay, so you're saying that 
you've had more than one depressive episode since you were 18 that lasts an extended period of time. This most recent episode not only was more intense than the first one you experienced, but it lasted triple the time that the first did. And now you're saying that through the week you're experiencing these intense bodily cycles. That's bipolar disorder. So from that point forward, I started working with a psychiatrist to get medicated and still seeing that therapist. So now I have been medicated since then and going to therapy. So I do both and that really works well for me. And what kind of medications, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, no, I don't care. Okay. So I'm on Lamictal, which is a mood stabilizer. Mm-hmm. I take 300 milligrams once a day. I take it right before bed because it's supposed to make me sleepy, which is great. <laughs> I'm just starting to get off of Seroquel just because it worked really well in helping me sleep. Again, I don't get any of the good hypomanic symptoms. If I'm having hypomanic symptoms, it's usually racing thoughts or irritability or um, unable to focus. And I noticed, actually, it got really warm here recently in Pittsburgh. And as soon as the weather started to pick up and it was starting to be sunny out longer, my moods actually heightened a good bit. I was like getting kind of excited because it was warm outside and I didn't have to wear my winter coat anymore. And I could feel myself getting that weird, uncomfortable, hypomanic energy. So I was having a really hard time sleeping. And if you're not sleeping well and you're bipolar, that just exacerbates all of your troubles. But Seroquel was making me hungover feeling in the mornings too much. I was too sleepy. And I drive a lot for my job. So I wouldn't have expected you to be on Seroquel. Typically, that's more of a tranquilizer. And, and more for people that are manic, to my understanding. I get the unfun okay. symptoms. The racing thoughts are the big one. Mm-hmm. And typically when I sleep without any kind of medication, and this is including the Lamictal, because of the Lamictal I just consider a, a straight mood stabilizer as far as what I'm using it for. Mm-hmm. I can wake up bare minimum twice a night. On a good night, I'll only wake up twice. And then on a really shitty night, I'll wake up five, six, seven times. Every hour on the hour. Yeah. Like it's really, really kind of ridiculous. And I've done a lot of things on my own to try to avoid, because I don't want to end up on Ambien or anything like that. Um, just because that seems like so, a bunch of hassle. So here, here's a hilarious part. <laughs> just just to add to that is uh, I needed a sleeping pill. I was really stressed out at work and a friend of mine said, here, try this. It ended up being Seroquel. Oh, <laughs> and I was out for 24 hours and then the next 24 hours I could not function. Like you, you literally could have come into my house and taken all my stuff and I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Yeah. You don't, you <laughs> as a human being, I'm like, I mean, I don't know your story. I don't know you, but I'm going to assume you probably don't need Seroquel. No. So it makes sense. It probably, uh, walloped you pretty good. I was on the lowest dose. Yeah, this and was it's like, still it knocked me the hell out. This was like 400 milligrams, and I took half of. I the, was on 150. Yeah, I took 200 milligrams apparently, and it was not a good situation for me. I never will take it again. But I went to the doctor, and he actually prescribed me uh, a few Ambien pills. It was like 10, and I ended up cutting those in half. And believe it or not, that works the best for me. But if I take Ambien 
multiple nights in a row on that fourth or fifth night that I don't take it, I absolutely have trouble falling asleep again. Hmm. So if I don't take any sleep aid, then I just start sleeping naturally again. But if I become dependent on Ambien, then I can't get to sleep naturally anymore. And that's the only thing that I didn't like about Ambien. So I only take it when I know I have something going on the next day and my mind's racing and I have to go, no matter what, I have to get to sleep. So it's like maybe once a month I might take an Ambien now. But of course the doctor won't prescribe it to me anymore because he says it's addictive. And I'm like, I still have the 10 that you prescribed. Right. But that's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that it's going to get to a point where like I'm taking a bunch of stuff and it's, I can't, I still can't sleep. So I'm really trying other things that I, that are kind of non-medication related to help me sleep. Like I didn't want to buy curtains. That seems frivolous and dumb. So we just hung black sheets over our bedroom windows Mm -hmm. to make sure it's as dark as humanly possible. I bought earplugs. I have a big eye mask thing so I can like kind of sensory deaden myself to help me get back to sleep. But it was to the point before I got on the Seroquel that like no matter what I was doing, it it didn't matter. Like none of my tricks were kind of working to get my brain to shut off. And that, and once it gets to the point where like I'm doing everything I can to sort of help myself through whatever symptoms are presenting themselves and I still can't function very well or I'm starting to get loopy because I'm so tired and I can't sleep, that's when I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, maybe my medication needs tweaked and maybe I need help. But then my alarm would go off and I'd get up to go to work. You're all groggy. Oh, my God. I was like pinching myself on a, d- a day last week because I do a lot of driving and I'm in the car and I'm like trying not to nod off while I'm driving. And like, I cannot like try not to die. It's almost better if you just would have woken up five times during the night, like <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So I think I'm just going to, um, roll without the Seroquel and see what happens for a while. I have Xanax for panic attacks because mm-hmm. for a while when I'm in a really bad, um, like kind of depressive episode, I can be prone to panic attacks, which sucks. And I work in a, in a way that where I can be like out in public sometimes. And if I'm, there's like too many people and I get all stressed out and that'll set off a panic attack. And it's really, really a hindrance to my employment at that point. So I don't think Xanax are any fun. I don't know why people really enjoy them. I don't get it. Xanax, and I'm not trying to promote recreational use of pharmaceutical drugs, (laughs) but um, Xanax to me is very similar feeling of euphoria as, say, smoking marijuana, but without without the paranoia or the hunger, the munchies. Interesting. See, now for me, when I take Xanax, it's a deadening effect. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if that's just because like I'm on other things or because I'm bipolar, but like I don't get the fun part. So my thoughts will still be rotating on a slower pace. I'll be like, yo, you're really upset about this thing. And my sort of eternal emotional response will be, eh. Yeah, well, that's... On the Xanax. <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know if you smoke pot or not, but that's, to me, it's the exact same thing now as far as... When I said euphoric or whatever, it's it is a deadening. It's I don't care about my problems really anymore. So yeah. therefore I'm happy. And it's not exactly makes me happy. It just makes me not care about the bad stuff. 
Yeah, it didn't make me happy. I did smoke pot for a while. I haven't in a long time. Just because my mom is like, she is a chronic, chronic pot smoker. And I do not think anything is wrong with smoking pot. And I have no problem saying that. Mm-hmm. I just don't really think it's an issue. I think how people use it can be an issue more than the substance itself. Um, for example, my mom has been a chronic everyday user for as long as I can remember. She doesn't smoke to get high. She smokes to get by. Like she can't function. Yeah. But that's all just in her head because there have been times where she was dead poor, broke ass self and couldn't get herself any weed or whatever. And she was agitated. But like chemically, you're not addicted. Like that's you telling yourself you need it at that point. At least that's how I gauged her situation. No, and, and it's absolutely true. It's a mental crutch, not a physical crutch. As much as I... 100% am a marijuana advocate. I don't smoke it myself because it makes me paranoid and it freaks me out. I have seen my friends who are in a bad place start smoking pot and then I don't see them for eight months because they didn't get off the couch. Right. And then finally they get off the couch and and I ask them, I'm like, oh, do you want to smoke a joint or something? And they're like, no, I don't want to do that because that's going to put me back on the couch. See, and here's my thing. And this is just what I believe. So, like, whatever works for anybody, I I don't, you know, good for you. But, like, at least for me and the things that I have seen and the experiences I have had, it's not really the weed that's keeping them on the couch. There's whatever's happening for that person at the time, and they just so happen to be smoking weed, and it all sort of culminates to where they don't get off the couch. I don't like to make vast generalizations, but I think it's really common for people, again, coming back to disengaging, but like not being a part of whatever's happening in their life, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, and they don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So then they're smoking weed and all of a sudden it's the weed's fault, you know, when it was yeah. them not wanting to deal with whatever what was going on and they wanted to really sit on the couch anyway. So in the friend I'm referring to, he absolutely wasn't blaming the weed. He just was saying it did not help. <laughs> yeah. And I respect people who say that like I've always felt this weird sort of quasi depressive feeling kind of coming off of weed. What do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have or the public has of mental illness? I'll give you kind of an example from me is, you know, people would say, what's your biggest fear? And people would say, I'd be afraid of going mad or going crazy. And then the the comeback was always, well, you wouldn't know you were crazy if you went crazy. And I always thought, yeah, you would. It's interesting that you bring that up. I feel like when you go mad, quotations, in the sense that like you're having delusions, then in that case, you don't really know that you're going crazy because your sense and basis of reality is gone at that point. I've had like really good friends who are amazing, sweet, kind people who had suffered PTSD flashbacks and lost their sense of reality for a little while just because they didn't know what was real and what was just an echo of something that had happened to them in the past. So that's kind of true. Also, in my experience um, with my mom, I want to say... That the kind of like you don't really know you're crazy could also apply to her in the sense that 
she would do really horrible and shitty things and have no accountability for it. And sometimes that was just her piss poor decision making coming into play. But sometimes it was just her disease and her mental illness, like emboldening her actions to the point where she was making like a long successive like chain of shitty events happen to her and the people around her. And she would always push off that responsibility. Well, no, this isn't my fault. I didn't make this happen. This happened because of all the other stuff. And that is like kind of a, you're crazy, but you don't know it. It really depends on what you want to say crazy is. Yeah. And what you want to define awareness as, I suppose. And something that you touched upon was piss poor decision making. Yes. And here is where I have a really hard time dealing with family members or friends that have a mental illness because do I blame all their decisions on their mental illness and give them sympathy? Or do I think you would have done this regardless of whether you're in a dark place or not because you just make shitty decisions in life? And it's that fine line of blame them for their bad decision or if their bad decision was a direct result of their mental state. And it's it's hard because people can appear totally sane, coherent, and everything, and then do something horrible. I am really glad you brought this up because I feel like this is one of the really common things that a lot of people have to kind of deal with, either knowing somebody who's mentally ill or loving somebody who's mentally ill or being related to somebody who's mentally ill. And I actually found something online recently that kind of resonated well and also ties into this. Mm -hmm. So um, basically it's a line of text and it's repeated just on this JPEG or whatever. And it says, your abuser's trauma doesn't justify them abusing you. People can have a whole plethora of awful things happen to them early on in their lives. I saw my dad beat the shit out of my mom. He kind of beat the shit out of me. I was sexually abused by people that were neighbors at the time. All types of stuff. And I'm sure there's, there's, well, I know for a fact that there's even worse things that can happen to a person from a very young age that can heavily, heavily influence who they are and can even set off mental illness, whether or not it's in their family, um, just kind of as a physiological response to the abuse and trauma. So when is it, when is the person accountable and when is the illness accountable? Uh, the good question to kind of start with, I think, is whether a person is remorseful and feels ashamed or can take responsibility of the things that they've done. I have done shitty fucking things to people. And I'm I'm sorry, I swear a lot. And the podcast is labeled <laughs> explicit, so it's okay. Okay. Um, I, I've done shitty things, shitty things to people that I've loved a lot shitty things to people that definitely didn't deserve it at the time. I've lied. I've cheated. Um, I've just made fucking shitty decisions, lack of a better way to put it. And sometimes I made decisions that I didn't really want to make just because I thought I had to or because of the situation, whatever. And then those didn't feel good either. Um, just because they didn't feel like decisions that I was really making. Um, So the difference between my shittiness and I would say my mom's shittiness because I'm intimately acquainted with her shittiness 
is my mom was able to steal my identity, commit thousands of dollars of credit card fraud, and then sit across from me at a at a table and look me in the eye and tell me that it was 40% my fault that she stole my identity and committed credit card fraud and only 60% her fault. And in what world could that be justified? In what mind could she say, it's your fault that she did this? Right. And that is true, at least with her and how she treated me and my brothers and all of us really, our whole lives. It's never been about any of the decisions she's made. It's always been about other things. Um, never once has she shown remorse or truly been apologetic for anything she's ever done. So I feel like you're able to adequately judge what's happening with a person and whether you can hold them accountable based on how they're treating their shitty action. So like the shitty things that I have done, oh, this is complicated. I'm trying to forgive myself for them, but I still hold myself accountable for them because I did them. Mm-hmm. So if I ever get the opportunity to sit across from one of the people that I've done harm to, and I, I would love to do this someday, I would say sorry without expect expecting them to forgive me. I think that's true remorse. That's as unselfish as you can make an apology because really apologies are kind of selfish because you're seeking the other person to kind of tell you it's cool, it's okay, don't worry about it. But if you're really sorry – you're saying it because you want to take accountability for that situation and express it to that person mm-hmm. without expectation. So if you have somebody in your life who not only causes pain to you or people around you, but then just to take it a step further, they don't ever say they're sorry or they don't really say they're sorry or maybe they only say sorry when they feel like they're supposed to say sorry – or when you call them on it. <laughs> uh-huh. Then that's not somebody who knows real remorse. And that is somebody who I consider toxic by my own definition. I mean, everybody, you know, lives life by their own rules. But as far as what works for me, that's somebody who is toxic and dangerous. They're not a safe person to have close to you if they're willing to hurt you and not only hurt you once, but hurt you over and over and over and over again. Needless to say, I personally don't speak to either of my parents <laughs> anymore. They're not in my life. And it sucks and it's sad sometimes. And I still get upset about it. I got married in 2014 and neither of my parents were there wow. because it wasn't worth it. I have very little contact with my mother uh, just because she is very vindictive, vicious, and unsupportive of anything I do or say. I, she doesn't even know what a podcast is and seems annoyed if I ever talk about it. That's sad. I'm uh, sorry you have to deal with that. So my sister still is around her. My sister has her own bipolar disorder. And, my, and every time I do interact with my mom, she says something just very venomous to me. And then I'm like, oh, I forgot. That's how it is again. And then yeah. my sister will be like, why aren't you calling? Why aren't you talking to her? And I'll explain to her and, and she'll be like, you know, that's just the way mom is. And I'm like, mm, it, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I, yeah. and that's kills me because that is, that is the excuse that seems to cover all kinds of sins, especially amongst family. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's just the way they are. 
They're old. They don't know any better. No, they know better. Really, there's all sorts of colors on the morality scale, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And it's wrong to sit there and look at your child and and tear them down. And the people that do it and aren't sorry are doing it because it makes them feel good and they get something out of it. I have a semi-different opinion about why people tear others down. Ooh, Uh, tell me. What uh, is it? A lot of people say, oh, well, they, they tear you down to make themselves feel better. Sometimes people feel good and tearing you down means nothing to them. It's not making them feel better or worse or anything. They are sociopathic to it. And yeah. and it really truly is a personality trait or a symptom of depression or something. They don't feel better after they tear you apart. That's just how they're used to relating. That's just how they are. That's, you know, that's just the way their brain thinks. I have to admit, I've said mean things to people in my past, and I never felt joy from doing it. I didn't feel better after I tore somebody apart or ripped them or or insulted them. I, I never came away with a big smile on my face. I was I was actually more angry at that point. <laughs> did you think that you were helping them by telling them that? Like, did it feel like you were speaking truth to them, maybe? Yeah. I've come from that. I've done that before. Yeah, I, I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, I was trying to correct them or show them how stupid they were, you know. Right. I mean, I've done that in the sense that this is sort of something that I've come back around to just because I was kind of well, I'm a pretty direct upfront person just as it is. There was a time in my early twenties before I was really aware of what was happening for me that I could kind of be kind of aggressive about it. I'd be a cunt. Really, not even a bitch. I was like the next step. And sometimes I could I could tell even though I felt justified in doing it, like right after I would finish my sentence, there would sort of be this like heavy moment of just like dread because I was meeting the situation with more intensity that was needed because I thought like, well, no, this person needs to know that's not the way it works. This isn't the way that it is. At least for me, I know that I approached people like that in the past because I didn't have compassion for them or how they were doing at the time or whatever was going on. I had no compassion for the situation or the person. And that's mostly because I was not shown compassion. And it sucks. You think you're helping sometimes, but you're not. I guess I just kind of want to dispel that people tear other people down to make themselves feel better. And I'm like, I never felt no, that. Not, <laughs> not always. That is a good point. Not always. Yeah. Uh, a few other things that I wanted to ask you about. Definitely. Um, fire away. A lot of these medications constipate you, have horrible side effects that sometimes I think don't outweigh the solution. <laughs> Do you, Have you experienced anything like that? A little bit. Um, I've luckily been on lower doses of things. When I was on lithium, I was on lithium for a spell last summer. I drank water like I was dying. Like I just never tasted it before. And all I did was go to the bathroom, which is fine. I mean, that's not even that annoying, except that lucky me, I happen to have a kidney abnormality. And I literally, my body cannot like deal with me slamming liquids. (laughs) So I was constantly going to the bathroom. My kidney hurt all of the time. And that was not 
that was not working out. And then once I figured out what was going on with my kidney more, I just hopped off the lithium because I was like, this is helping, but it's really not yeah, yeah. worth this. And at the job that I had at the time was kind of giving me a hard time because I was breaking um, what they called schedule adherence mm. to constantly be going to the bathroom. <laughs> but I was like, I mean, I don't know what you want me to do, like pee my pants because I'm really thirsty. Before I was medicated, the simplest things took so much energy and willpower just to make happen. Just because I guess I am, well, I know I am on the more depressive end of the scale. Just going to work and staying in contact with people, trying to be a good partner, um, trying to be a good friend, just like trying to actively be engaged in my life beyond just working was such a chore and felt like such a weight that I was pretty willing to try medication up front because I needed some sort of relief from literally feeling like I was dragging the weight around because okay, I run into weird, goofy things like with the Seroquel hangovers, which was not fun. But I mean, I go to work and I come home and I don't feel totally zonked mm. after working eight hours. I can play video games. I can write. I can start to explore my hobbies again, which is something that I completely stopped doing because I was it was literally taking everything from me just to go to work and be successful. And successful I was, but I mean, I didn't have much of a life outside of work. I would see my friends periodically and everything, but I didn't have like the willpower or energy inside of me to do anything else. I just wanted to feel like I could be an active part of my life again and enjoy it. That's what I wanted. I was going to say, I'm, I'm glad you brought up like you weren't able to do your hobbies, something simple like that. But sometimes before you're medicated, okay, so you got fired from your job because you had a panic attack. Now finances are going to be a problem. Or you're on a new medication that kills your libido. So now maybe you're not being as affectionate to your partner as you normally are. Maybe you're not doing your hobbies now. So you're kind of grumpy about that. There's so many elements and factors that people I don't think consider all the time when it comes to mental illness or being medicated for mental illness. And I didn't know if you suffered or seen all the, that gamut of things. I have. And I think at least just talking on a larger scale for people who are thinking about getting on medication or um, maybe have thought about it, but are kind of afraid of it. I think it helps to know what you don't want, like what your hard limits are, so to say. So, for me, it just hit the point where I was like, okay, I'm really not living the life I want to be living. And there were there was a ton of reasons for that beyond just the bipolar disorder that were things that I needed to fix personally. Mm -hmm. But some of it was chemical that was sort of preventing me from being able to spearhead things, you know, take things head on to try to um, find solutions. I didn't want to fall back into another depressive episode because one of the things that my therapist who's wonderful, told me straight up was, you know, we don't have to talk about medication right now. You can think about it. You can see how the bipolar thing fits for you. You can talk to your friends and family and see what they think. And then we can keep talking about it so you can understand what's happening. But I do want to tell you that, you know, as time goes on, if you have another depressive episode, it, it can worsen. 
because that's just what happens as you get older. Mm-hmm. Depression changes and your depressive episodes um, can really, really get much worse. And I had already seen that at that point when she was telling me this. Mm-hmm. And I knew I couldn't. I barely made it out of the last one. I can't. Like, I cannot go through that again. So I was more willing to sort of, like, undertake the risks Mm -hmm. and explore what the challenges might be. And there has been some. I mean, it's annoying to have to take pills every day. Like, that's not super fun. Or when the Seroquel, when I first started it, I was falling asleep at like 8.30 at night, which is not fun either for me or my husband when we both work Mm -hmm. and want to come home at the end of the day and hang out. You know what I mean? Like, that sucks. It puts added pressure on your relationship that no one would consider. Right. And I mean, those are the things I, you definitely have to evaluate what, what's important to you and what, what ultimately you do end up wanting. But I always think it's easier to start with what you don't want Mm -hmm. than to start with what you want. Yeah. Because I didn't even know what I was missing, not being medicated for so long. I wish I had gone sooner just because I could have had so much more time just to kind of get to where I am now. I mean, I, um, I kind of do wish I had gotten medicated sooner just because I feel I feel better than I ever have more like a real person, more me than I've ever felt. And I I'm sad that I had to go so long not doing that. That's typically what I hear from most people is I wish I had done this sooner so I wouldn't have had to suffer or go through whatever trials and tribulations I did because it was unnecessary. Right. Not to mention the shit I put, like, if anybody bore the brunt of my bullshit the most, it was definitely my husband, who is an incredibly caring, kind person, luckily for me. And even when I tried to, like, destroy our relationship, he saw the good in me before I really saw it and had faith in that. But I I wish I hadn't put him through so much fucking horse shit. If it had been anybody else, I would have been alone. (laughs) <laughs> a long time ago but um well, he really stuck with me that's why you're with him you know yeah it's, he's my fucking person man my my wife and i we always make jokes we're like we're the only people that would put up with the other one's shit <laughs> i swear and that is like so undervalued is there anything else i didn't cover that you like went into this wanting to say or wanting to get out <laughs> I've thought about it all day since we determined that we were going to talk. Mm -hmm. And there was like so many different things that I imagine bringing up or talking about. And we totally um, didn't talk about them, right? (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like uh, just like imagining the antidotes antidotes or whatever I would give. I don't know. Um, But really, I'd started talking more actively about my experiences. And I guess if there's anybody listening to this, and is unsure about how they're feeling or has always been curious about what it would be like to get help or maybe they're suffering at the hands of someone like careless like we were talking about before who keeps tearing them down. The biggest thing I would want to impress upon anybody is that you have a choice. There's always a, a another alternative and maybe it's one you never thought of. Like you kind of just grow up accepting the things that you're told and that you're going to do things this way and, you know, mm-hmm. you can do whatever the fuck you want and it's awesome. <laughs> you know, you have a choice in how you deal with shitty people being horrible to you. You have a choice in how you deal with adversity in your life. You have a choice in how you cope with shit. 
but there's always a choice and there could be a choice that you haven't thought of yet. Yeah, it was the hardest choice for me to distance myself from my own mother, but I have. <laughs> it fucking hurts, man. I know you know, because like obviously you've done it. And even after all the things my mom and my dad have done to me, it still hurts. And it still hurts to this day. Like Mother's Day always kind of fucking sucks. <laughs> like it's just weird. Like I feel like an alien, especially with social media, because everybody's like posting pictures of their moms and or holidays. You know, those are always hard anyway. But it's even harder when you're distant from your family or you don't have contact with your family because that's kind of the time where you look for that sense of community. You know, you want to be with your people. And I do what I call Friendsgiving on Thanksgiving where I hang out with my friends and we all cook and have like a potluck because none of us like to hang out with our families. One of the best feelings that I have discovered more recently in the last few years is refining the people that I have close to me down to people that I can fully be myself with. I've lost people but I've also pulled the people that I love the most closer to me. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Tiffany. And thank you everyone for listening. I will see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.